It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot, rebound, great save by Dimko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How's your Thursday? I can't stop watching this. I can't stop watching it. I will tell you what it is later in the show. If you follow me on Twitter at Scott Rintoul, you already know what it is. It's a six-second clip, and I am captivated. I'm captivated. I really am. Jamie Dodd is the laugh that you hear. How are you today, sir? I'm doing very, very well, Scotty. I'm glad that it's not often that you can find a six-second clip, which, which captivates you to this degree. So that's exciting for you. Are you with me? I, I am. Yes, I know okay. what you're talking about, and it's pretty interesting. Excellent. We will reveal that throughout the course of the show. I want you involved in the conversation. 969-66-50-650 on September the 2nd as we march toward NHL training camps. There is a little bit of hockey news coming in this morning. The RFA contracts are getting done. There's been some consternation from some fans in Vancouver, Jamie, that Quinn Hughes, Elias Pettersson are not locked up. Don't expect an announcement today. There are many within the Canucks organization that hope that those announcements are coming in the next number of days, but nothing definitive as of yet. But this is just how business goes in the NHL. This is year after year. Casey Middlestat signed as an RFA today in Buffalo. Not a lot of leverage on his part. No. And, and a much different profile, obviously, with Casey Middlestat than either Elias Pettersson or Quinn Hughes, right? I believe it was three years, 2.5 AAV, you know, former top 10 pick who has not developed at all how they would have liked in Buffalo. So he gets the much lower number. And, you know, as to your point about the consternation here in Vancouver, I mean, we're getting into the window where, you know, if something happened next week, right, it wouldn't shock me as training camp starts to come up. We're not at the true pressure point just yet, but we're inching closer to, you know, again, I'm not expecting an announcement today, but if something happens the next week, next 10 days, it wouldn't shock me either. That's the pressure point. It really is. And which side feels more pressure for training camp, whether it's the player or the team in either case. And it doesn't matter if it's Vancouver or somewhere else, if it's Ottawa with Brady Kachuk, because there's a tendency, Jamie, in these situations to feel like it's only our team. This could only be happening to us. And yes, it's two players in Vancouver as opposed to a place like Ottawa where, yeah, they have Brady Kachuk and Drake Batherson. I guess they've got two that they're wondering about as well. Batherson not seen as much of the future in Ottawa, perhaps, or at least as big a piece as, as perhaps a Quinn Hughes in Vancouver. But those deals aren't done yet either. It's not a good look for either side if players are holding out going into camp, and that's a situation nobody wants to get to. It isn't, but at the same time, you know, we've seen it, or at least something very similar here in Vancouver in the past, right? Brock Besser is the example that springs to mind. I mean, Bo Horvat's contract was done very, very late. So it's kind of what you should be expecting. It doesn't mean you have to like it, right? I understand why it can be a little nervous for Canucks fans, especially after we did see the rare offer sheet handed down on the weekend. So I I get that, but... It's also just kind of business as usual for the NHL as a whole, for this team specifically. So I don't think there's anything to be too worried about here. Kirill Kaprizov is still out there, hasn't gotten that deal done in Minnesota. A guy like Rasmus Dahlin. So we'll wait for these contracts to come in in coming days. Interesting one in Philly today, a guy who is not up for another year in terms of being in RFA. Joel Farabee led the Flyers in goals last year with 20. He got a six-year deal today. He signed a year early. He gets $30 million secured. That's an AAV of five, in case you're not up for math at this point in the morning. 
Yeah, so he avoids this whole process next year after his ELC expires, gets the deal done a year early. He's going to spend the next seven seasons in Philly, barring a trade. And, you know, this is one of those, okay, if we get this guy locked up early, can we lock in a little bit of upside? Yeah, we go long term. Maybe we don't love paying him $5 million in the first year of the deal, but you get to buy out a couple of UFA years as well. You figure you're going to get a deal on those at least. Jordan and Langley, again, this is where it feels like it's only your team. No, this is how business goes with Benning. Well, as Jamie pointed out, in some cases it's gone that way with Jim Benning, but this is not a unique situation to the Vancouver Canucks. That's not me apologizing for him. That's just the business of the National Hockey League. This happens in a lot of different places. We'll see where it goes. That, to me, is not the big news of the day, but we know you like your hockey morsels to get you warmed up. The big news of the day to me is this, Jamie. Soccer fans, sports fans, really. Good news for you. Your collective voices have been heard. Jamie, when Canada was trying to get into the Ocho, as we're calling this octagonal, the final stage of World Cup qualifying on the men's side, there was a lot of... A lot of hand-wringing about where the games were being broadcast. One Soccer, Media Pro, they have the rights. Why is this not on one of our national sports stations? Why is CBC not picking it up? Well, good news. That's no longer the case. You're going to see this on a conventional platform beginning tonight. Final stage of World Cup qualifying happens today. It begins today at least. Canada hosts Honduras. It's one of a number of matches in the CONCACAF region that go today. There's going to be three of them in the next week. And you're going to see 13 of Canada's 14 games on Sportsnet. Now, the only one that will be on TSN, and I'm not telling you not to watch it. I hope you watch it as a sports fan. It'll be this weekend, Canada versus the U.S. But tonight, Honduras versus Canada. BMO Field, Canada hosting the first of 14 matches to qualify for the World Cup It's going to be on Sportsnet. So your collective voice is the, hey, let's get this on a bigger platform, a more conventional platform. There's always that, why should I have to pay extra? I I already pay for this. You don't have that excuse anymore. So now it's up to you as a fan. If you actually want to prove that this was the decision that should have been made many moons ago, you need to watch the games. You need to be involved. You need to say, okay, you did what I asked. I'm in. I'm watching Canada's men's team tonight. And you know what, Scotty? I think we're going to see that, right? And maybe later on in the qualifying process, it will depend how it's going. If it's going well, obviously people are going to be more likely to tune in. But the hype around this team is significant. And I do think we're going to see people tune in in big numbers. And, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled. I mean, first of all, that it's going to be predominantly on Sportsnet, except for the one match. That's awesome. But just in general... Yeah, I, I understood all of the fans' frustrations that it was going to be on this kind of niche streaming service. And that's no disrespect whatsoever to One Soccer. I know a lot of people have a lot of good things to say about how they've presented the games and how they've handled the broadcast, but it is going to feel more like it's just part of the national conversation now that it's on a traditional channel, right? That's that's just a fact. That's just where we still are as people who watch sports. So I'm really excited. I think it's going to be huge. It's going to make you know, following this qualification process even more fun. And I do think the interest, the ratings, the numbers, the people watching will be there.
We are going to dig into this qualifying process, where Canada sits in more detail as we go on throughout the course of this program. John Molinaro in particular is going to join us to kick off the third hour of our program today. But I'll just break it down for you pretty simply, Jamie, just the very casual view. In this group of eight, there are two very clear favorites. They are the United States and Mexico. Order them as you wish. The USA is the upper hand in their last couple of meetings, so most have them regarded as the favorite in the group, but it's pretty easy with the history to say that the Mexican team is the favorite. Those are your top two. After that, Canada's in this next tier, and Canada's in this tier with Honduras and Costa Rica, and depending what you think of world rankings, Jamaica. That's the tier that they exist in right now. There are three spots in this group that if you get one of the top three after 14 matches, you're going to the World Cup. And there's a half spot because if you finish fourth in this group, you're going to play this intercontinental match for one last chance. It'll go in June of 2022. It'll be a draw that takes place. But you're going to play a country maybe in the tier of, say, a New Zealand. And you got to win yeah. that to get into the World Cup. So there's this backdoor opportunity and Canada needs to finish in the top four minimum to give itself a shot at the World Cup. And they're in this second tier, fighting for a third. That should be a legitimate target for this year's side. Well, I think third has to be the target, right? The target has to be avoid that inter-confederation inter, uh, playoff possibility, right? Not that it's impossible to advance from that position, but you don't know who you're going to be playing, right? It could be the team that just misses out in South America, and then all of a sudden maybe you don't feel as good about your chances, or it could be a team you 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 know you don't have as much of a problem playing, but still, don't leave it to that, right? You want to get it done in this qualifying process. You want to finish in that top three spot. I think that... Given the strength of the squad, given what we've seen from them recently in competition, that should be the legitimate expectation. And so that means you're competing. I mean, look, you want to get the points when you can against Mexico and the United States as well, obviously. But you look at the standings, you're going to be competing with Honduras, with Costa Rica, and with Jamaica in all likelihood. And hey, who do they play tonight at home in Toronto? It's Honduras. So already a massive opportunity to start things off on the right foot for Canada tonight. John Herbman's on the record as saying 21 points. 21 points of Canadian soil, that is the goal. That means winning all seven of your matches. That's not get a result in all your matches. And maybe you think that's far-fetched given the level of competition in some cases like the United States and like Mexico, but that's what John Herdman has stated as the goal for this team. There's a couple of reasons momentum-wise to think, all right, people are going to get invested. And, boy, there's some pressure on the Canadian side tonight to perform well to keep them invested, Jamie. We're coming off a month where the Canadian women's soccer team won a gold medal. That helps. That certainly helps get some momentum directed toward this match tonight. We just saw a great Canadian team in the women. Rebecca Johnston, in fact, part of that gold medal winning team in Calgary a couple of nights ago. She's going to join us in the second hour of the program today. Different sport, but it's nationalism, it's national pride, it's Team Canada. That certainly helps. Numbers for those two events were excellent. I don't know what the numbers look like tonight. I do agree with you on this, though. There is more interest in this national men's side than I have witnessed in the past 30 years. But that interest... That interest, Jamie, it doesn't always translate to belief, and I want to gauge the belief of our listeners, of Team Canada fans, whether you're a casual or whether you're a hardcore. What's your level of belief in this Canadian side? 
Yeah, it, it's an interesting question. And get your responses in 650, 650, 960, 960 as well. Because I look at the squad and kind of intellectually, if I if I try to take my heart out of it, I look at it and say, yeah, this team should be a legitimate candidate to finish in the top three. They might, You might even say they're the favorites to finish in that third spot when you look at the talent they have. But also, as a fan of Canadian soccer, I know the history there. And I know what can happen in CONCACAF qualifying. I know how difficult it is to go on the road and to play teams in Honduras, in Costa Rica, in El Salvador, Panama, etc. Mexico, it can be extremely challenging, right? There's a reason John Herdman is saying we got to win all of our games at home. Because going on the road, very, very, very difficult. So there's still a part of me that has trouble fully... I don't want to say fully investing because I am fully invested, but fully believing that they're going to get it done. I know for me, just as a fan, I, I want to see an incredible run of results in this first group of three games, right? Like whether that's seven points, whether it's, you know, six because they win the two at home, whatever it is, I, I really want to see strong results right out of the gate. That will do a lot to kind of calm my nerves and help me actually believe a little bit more. Someone just texted in, Canada 69th, Honduras 80th, Jamaica 84th. Whoopee, how non-exciting in terms of FIFA rankings. Well, if you know anything about FIFA rankings and the way they're calculated, there are many within the soccer world who feel they don't really give an accurate picture. And even if that's the case, Jamie, who cares? This is yeah, about really, the end goal. The FIFA <laughs> rankings don't really matter here. How do you stack up to the rest of the group? And you laid it out well. Canada has a legitimate shot. A legitimate shot. This isn't a pipe dream. Well, you know, if this goes well, this is a team that can score. This is a team with some talent. This is a team with more offensive ability than I've ever seen from a Canadian side in my lifetime. Yeah, this, this team, this this nation qualified in 1986. That was a team that was built in the construct of most. Defend well, hope to score, and we'll go from there. That's not what this team is. In fact, the strength of this team is pushing forward, and there have been questions at times about Canada's ability to defend. We'll see what transpires here tonight. And you're right about the history, and that's why I'm putting this out there today, and I know that we're going to retweet it from the station accounts. Will the Canadian men's soccer team qualify for the 2022 World Cup? Yes, no, or crossing my fingers. Where are you at? And we have a very big balanced poll results so far it's very early we just put this out we're getting in and around 200 votes right now 38.9 percent of you say yeah i believe this is going to happen almost 29 percent are saying no sorry like team might be on the upswing but that's not happening and then there are 32% saying, I'm crossing my fingers. I find myself somewhere in between. Some of that has to do with history in the no and crossing my fingers category. Maybe, Jamie, some of it has to do with what we saw with Canada basketball in the last couple of months. Because there's a parallel to yeah. be drawn yep. here. And this is something you and I have talked about with Tim McAuliffe in the past. He feels more strongly about the soccer opportunity than he, did, he even did about the roster going into that last-ditch qualifier to go to the Olympics in Victoria in July, and to me, that roster was good enough to qualify for the Olympics, and it fell short. It, it's a good kind of counterbalance, though, to the optimism we're all feeling after, you know, the Canadian women in the Olympics and then the Canadian women hockey team, right? It, it's good to remember, hey, actually, it doesn't always work out in that storybook fashion. I would say the big difference for me between the men's basketball situation and the men's soccer situation and why I agree with what McAuliffe says, which is, you know, more confidence in soccer, is that 
this soccer squad for Canada has a recent history of putting results together, right, as a team. Whereas that group of Canadian basketball players was still more or less thrown together and asked to come together in a really rapid fashion and, and win some games, right? That's not the case for these players on the soccer squad. They they have played together. They have gotten good results at the Gold Cup. They've gotten good results in the last stage of qualifying to reach this final stage in CONCACAF, CONCACAF qualifying. So there's more of a history here for this team, which I think should give you more confidence than even we had going in in the basketball uh, tournament. Craig texts in, it's a qualifier, guys. Zero interest for me. Fair fair point, Craig. It's a qualifier. It's not the World Cup. But this is the furthest Canada's been in qualifying in more than two decades. This is close. And there is real optimism with this team. I don't know if you're in the majority. I don't think you are. But I suppose we'll see when the numbers come back after this first match. I think there is a healthy, healthy interest in this team. Marcus and Gibsons with a healthy squad and everyone playing. I think, yes, this is the time to qualify, says Marcus and Gibsons. And someone else said, you know, the women's performance at the Olympics is front of their minds. That's from Leaf Hater Steve. If I'm John Herdman, I'm just playing that on loop. Like, yeah. that's my motivation <laughs> Absolutely. tape. Maybe you're running a cut-down version so they don't sit through the entire 90-plus extra time and the shootout. Maybe you're... you're compressing that match jamie but yeah just play that for inspiration to get the the lads fired up for their national team well and also beyond just playing the game and showing the result i mean i think you also got to drive in like look how this country embraced that team right when they were playing on the biggest stage and then having success on the biggest stage that's the opportunity here right you can become icons in this country really if you are able to you know finish the job here and qualify for the world cup and then because you know the the support of canada is playing in the world cup next year next summer is going to be just off the charts i should say next fall actually given when it's going to be staged but it is going to be incredible the focus and the intensity and the support for soccer in this country at that moment is going to be like nothing we've ever seen before and that should be part of the motivating factor here for these players as well. Some good texts coming in, 960, 960. Uh, this one unsigned says, after watching Canada play the U.S. and Mexico in the Gold Cup, I think they have a great chance to come in second or third in this World Cup qualifying. And that's what I'm talking about. This team, we're not we're not just crossing our fingers. I know that's one of the poll options, but and hoping that this team can reach a certain level. They've shown us very, very recently that they're capable of beating Costa Rica, that they're capable of playing Mexico extremely closely, playing the United States extremely closely. You know, this is not a hypothetical situation. We know they are quality. We know they have the ability to do it. And we get another text coming in in 960, 960 saying, I vote fingers crossed. I get that because there is so much history. But if you just try to take the emotion out of it and just look at what the results and the roster are telling us, it's this team should be the favorite for that third spot. Some interesting texts coming in. And yeah, there are a lot of people saying fingers crossed right now, Jamie. But to your point, I guess the question is, if not now, when do we raise yeah. the standard? And that was my feeling with our Olympic men's basketball roster. And I know how Basketball Canada spun it coming out. Hey, Nick Nurse in particular saying, we learned a lot about ourselves here and we and we found some things out and, and this will be good for us in the long run. You're going to try to take the positives out of any situation if you're a coach, if you're somebody involved with it. But I feel like we scrutinized that team and said this isn't good enough. Like we can't just continue to ask for potential and maybe next time around. I know this country is going to be part of hosting the World Cup in 2026. And 
Tavi texts in sort of along those lines, and he says, I believe it will, but not this World Cup. The boys are young, and as David and Davies grow, I see them carrying this team to 2026. Look, come 2026, we all want it to be a legitimate qualification as opposed to, hey, here's a host berth. You get to be a part of it. Everybody wants that. But why not hold this team with the talent it has, with the results it's churned out so far, with the way it's competed against some of the teams that were just mentioned, Mexico, the United States? Why not hold them to a better standard now and say, go get it, not, hey, let's hope. I completely agree. I completely agree that there is, again, it's easy to say, ah, Canada always finds a way to screw it up and they never get it done. They're never able to get over that hump. But this team should be different. Right, We don't know if it'll play out that way, but again, there is every reason to believe that this team has the talent, this team should be different. I mean, even as you were saying, you know, they have attacking talent like Canada's never had before. And you just even think about the game like tonight where they're hosting Honduras in Toronto. The expectation in that game tonight should be that Canada dictates play, right? That should be the expectation. You're at home, you have the talent, you should be front foot forward, trying to take the play to Honduras. They should be the ones playing defensively and trying to escape with a draw. That hasn't happened (laughs) very much for Canada in CONCACAF games, right? Where you could go in and say, yeah, we should be the dominant team in this one. But that is absolutely the case for the game against Honduras tonight. More texts coming in, 960-960. Johnny in Calgary says, yes, yes, go Canada. The qualifiers are important. I will be watching Every minute, I think there's a lot of people on board with that, Johnny, that are going to be really, really excited to watch these qualifying games. And then another one texts in, Unsigned says, the problem will be the road games. Too much Central American corruption and cheating. And I don't know if it's corruption and cheating, but yeah, weird things happen when you go down to Central America and you go to some of the Caribbean nations in CONCACAF. That is absolutely the potential pitfall here. Yeah, at Sporty, at Sporty Josh 6 on Twitter hits me up with a similar comment saying, CONCACAF is disgustingly corrupt, so I would say our best hope is to get fourth and pray that we hit the Oceana side. New Zealand in brackets there. Outside of America, we can beat any team, but the refs won't allow us to beat a team like Mexico in Mexico or in Costa Rica or in Honduras, etc. Well, with the national televised games, I think that helps the case of keeping this all above board. Let's yep. stop using that as an excuse, though. Let's stop yep. using that as an excuse. That's not the reason back in 2012 that what we were hopeful for for Canada trying to get to this stage going into Honduras ended up in an 8-1 loss. That's not <laughs> no. why. That's not <laughs> no, why. It, yeah. was, <laughs> it wasn't shady refereeing that put those eight goals in, no. No, you can't use that as an excuse. You know what it's going to be like. You should be good enough to get the job done. Let's go. LFG right now. This text comes in. I want to end on this, and it's a conversation I want to have throughout the course of the morning about where you're at, how invested you are, how much belief you have in this side to get the job done. Not watching the World Cup qualifiers because it's not the World Cup. Isn't that the same as not watching the regular season for the Canucks or your team, but only the Stanley Cup playoffs if they're in it? LOL, says this texter. Yeah, there's a similarity there, right? Yeah, we all want to watch Canada in the World Cup, but guess what? They got to win these games first. So if you're going to be invested, if they make the World Cup, I don't know why you wouldn't be invested now, right? And we got texts coming in like that. Again, Calgary 960-960 says, I'm super pumped for this team. I'll be watching every game. Building a larger fan base with having these games on Sportsnet will help grow the game and the fan base. And that's certainly the hope, right? Okay, we've got this platform. This team has this opportunity to do something really, really special and grow the game of soccer in Canada. 
Very few among us have had the opportunity to build our own home, Jamie, to construct it in the vision we would like. If you were to do it, would you do it like this? I'll explain that next, and we'll talk some NFL football on the other side. It's Rintoul and Dodd on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie, do you hope to one day be in position to build your own home? Is that a goal of yours? Uh, no, because, you know, I live in the lower mainland of British Columbia and I know how unrealistic of a goal that is. So I understand the appeal. Don't get me wrong, but no, it is not a goal that I have. Yeah. It feels like one of those things, like I hope to own something one day would be great if I got to design something amazing if it happens, but probably not going to be for me. No, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm all about the attainable goals. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I'm not not including that one. The one percenters, however, have that option. Oh, yeah. You know, you know oh, what yeah. I'm talking about when I say the one percenters. It's Skyrim Tool, it's Jamie Dodd. And Mark Davis is most certainly a one percenter. He is the owner of the Las Vegas Raiders, Jamie. Yes, and uh, you know, one of the more, I don't, I don't know how to, how to phrase it, but he's an interesting owner, I guess, in the NFL. That might be one way to put it. Yeah, that's one way to put it. I mean, if you judged people's bank accounts by their haircuts, you would never believe that he is a one percenter, but he happens to be. He has the word. He might have the worst haircut in the entire NFL. Forget about ownership. It might just be in the entire league, personnel, everybody involved. Yeah, it's not a great look. The bowl cut is not working for him. Did you see the crib that he is putting together oh, yeah. in Vegas? It literally looks like when you see a rendering of what he is going to build – in Henderson, which will allow him to overlook the practice facility. If somebody gave you a picture of this rendering and told you, well, this is the new office of the Las Vegas Raiders. This is where the big execs are going to come on a daily basis and and conduct their power broker meetings. You would say, okay, but it's his home, Jamie. It looks like something that is constructed like a stadium or a practice facility. Yeah, or it looks like, you know, like a futuristic airport terminal or, you know, like a a military installation of some sort. It looks like anything but a comfortable home. That's the last thing it looks like. It is wild, and I'm sure it's going to be incredibly functional and comfortable, all of those things, because when you have the type of dough that, first of all, to get into the neighborhood, he's going, I'm not going to go into a deep dive on Vegas real estate, but... Basically, this is a place that they blasted a whole bunch of mountain out of so they could create for people who were wealthy enough to afford to build homes on these massive lots. Like, that's literally how this community came to be. So that's where Mark Davis is going. And what he's doing here, like, I'm sure it'll be comfortable and functional inside, but you're right. It kind of looks spaceship airport-esque. Yeah, it looks like intimidating kind of from the outside you know what i mean again like there's some sort of very kind of institutional but but like dangerous institution feel to it right like it's not a place that you look at and say oh that looks like a nice place to spend some time again i'm sure it'll be very nice on the inside but just from the outside it's kind of horrifying well maybe that's what mark davis said to the designers when he was working (laughs) with them maybe he said look we're the raiders man we need to convey a certain image and i need this home to convey a certain image. i wanted to have all of the amenities i wanted to have all of the comforts that anybody in my in my class of wealth would aspire to but I also want it to look intimidating. I want it to look like if somebody from a, a team that doesn't have as intimidating a reputation rolls up, 
they might be just a little worried going. Yeah, they, they might be a little uncomfortable, a little, uh, you know, at, at, at unease, uneasy seeing it. Most in NFL circles not talking about Mark Davis's crib. They are talking about what's happening. We're a week away from the kickoff of the NFL season, which is why we bring Ben Spiegel of the New York Times on to talk some NFL with us here today. Ben, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you today? I am great. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm glad to hear that you are great. I don't know if you're in New York proper, New York State, but it's impossible if you're paying any attention to the news or what was happening on social media yesterday not to see some of the crazy scenes with flooding in New York City. Where are you? What? Where are you at relative to that? So I am in Buffalo uh, doing some reporting around the Bills, and it is 70 and sunny and gorgeous here. Um, my wife and kids are back home in northern New Jersey, and my kids' school was canceled, and all things considered, uh, we got very lucky with stuff in our house, but a lot of friends and families and businesses in our area, and the infrastructure just looks like a mess. So we fortunately are very lucky, but I know there are many others around us who are not, and I just, I'm not sure what I'm going to go ahead and come home to when I uh, hopefully get home tomorrow since my flight home was canceled for today. Oh, man, I saw some of the troubles and the, the airports being flooded and all of those different yeah. things happening in New York. And I'm happy for you and your family that things are as good as they can. But you've probably been you've probably been never happier to be in Buffalo. You know, it's funny. I was talking with their GM this morning, uh, Brandon Bean, and I was, you know, saying how, uh, you know, I'm marooned here another day. And he made the excellent point that it's better to be marooned in Buffalo when it's 70 and sunny on September 2nd than January 2nd when it's, you know, minus 10 and snowing sideways and i said i totally agree with you there. happy to happy to go ahead and be here in lovely buffalo another day well that's a nice segue into where the bills find themselves because most free agents over the years the most players over the past two decades have said yeah i'm marooned in buffalo not so much anymore this is a team that went to the afc championship game a year ago this is a team that added in the offseason is winning the afc realistic when you compare them to the chiefs for example i mean listen until proven otherwise, Patrick Mahomes is the overlord of the AFC. And whether the Bills loaded up and the Browns loaded up and the Ravens still have Lamar Jackson and you know the Chargers are ascending, whatever else you want to go ahead and throw out there, you still have to go ahead and get by the Chiefs. Now, do I think that the Bills are the second-best team in the conference? I do. I'm really eager to see how the Browns fare this season, considering the moves that they made, especially on defense. But look, I mean, Josh Allen after his first two seasons, goes ahead and puts up an MVP caliber season as he did last year, and the Bills have to hope, and they you know, invested $100 million guaranteed betting that he would, that he's going to go ahead and continue this upward trajectory. And if he does, I think all things are possible for the Bills. What did you hear when you're, you're in Buffalo right now doing some reporting around the team? What have you heard from the players, the coaches, the executives about their expectations for this season? Oh, it's, 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 you know, I mean, no one's going to go ahead and say it's like Super Bowl or bust or all that jazz, but, you know, they understand how close they came last year and the Chiefs were a team that gave the Bills fits twice. You know, their defense wasn't one of the quote unquote best, the most feared in the NFL, but they played really well when it counted and they got better down the stretch. And so the Bills know that they're going to have to get past Kansas City at some point, whether they sort of exercise those demons in the regular season and they play them relatively early, I believe, <laughs> or whether there's that sort of inevitable showdown uh, 
in excuse me in January, and I think again, yeah. I think the Bills are loaded, and it really all depends on uh, on Josh Allen. I want to stick in the AFC East a little bit, Ben, as well, because I think it's a fascinating division now, right? With Josh Allen taking that leap to kind of MVP level last year, and then you have a trio of of very young quarterbacks uh, rounding out the division. And, you know, let's start in New England. They make the surprising decision, at least to some, to cut Cam Newton and roll with Mac Jones as their week one starter this year, the rookie that they picked in the first round. Do you think that, one, Mac Jones is good enough to – you at least have them in playoff contention as a rookie quarterback, but also the rest of that roster is good enough for them to be in legitimate playoff contention. So I think the Patriots roster, like they're going to be better than last year, right? I mean, I don't think what we saw from Belichick and all the offseason uh, player acquisition and the moves that they made, that signaled certainly a discontent with a team that went 7-9 and nine last year. That's very un-Patriots-like. Um, do I think that they're good enough for the playoffs? I do. I don't know whether they're going to get one of those spots. I think that it's going to be pretty competitive for assuming. And I don't know whether we should, but I think it's probably pretty fair to say, considering uh, what happened last year and what I just mentioned, that the Bills are the favorites win the AFC East. And after that, you have Miami, you have New England, you have San Diego, you have potentially Denver. Who knows? You have whoever comes in second in the AFC South, which is a pretty middling division. So New England's going to have its work cut out for them, but Mac Jones is going to be playing with a better roster this year than Cam Newton did last year. And I also think that there's something to the extent that after playing, after having a pocket passer for two decades in Brady, that that they can kind of go back to that this year. With Mac, and I'm not, I'm not saying that he's going to be Tom Brady, but I think that if we're going to evaluate him and the comfort level that Josh McDaniels has and the offense up there has as a whole, then I'm eager to see how it functions with the personnel that they brought in, and if both those teams, Henry and John U. Smith, stay healthy, they're going to be pretty watchable this year. And plus, they got Dante Hightower back, who opted out last year. And they're going to be more of a complete team. Whether they're going to go ahead and contend with Buffalo, I don't think that they're going to. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that they can go ahead and finish second in that division and be in contention deep in the season for a wild card spot. Yeah, and I think the other team that I think a lot of people would expect to kind of be in contention for that second spot in the division would be the Miami Dolphins. Tua Tagovailoa going into his second season as an NFL quarterback, how much improvement are you expecting to see from Tua? I would I would think that we're going to see a lot, or at least the Dolphins certainly expect that he's going to, right? Like that defense, what we saw last year, that they are good enough. And the, and the team that they built around him, adding Fuller, adding Waddle, that team is, is good enough to go ahead and give the Bills a win for, uh, a run for their money, assuming other things pan out, right? And those other things really depend on, on Tua. But if he goes ahead and he falters and you know, the offensive line that they've constructed, if they all kind of go ahead and, 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 uh, and stagger, it really goes ahead and it feels like that it puts a little bit more pressure on that defense, which was really good last season, especially at taking the ball away. But that's a pretty unsustainable, you know, characteristic of the defense. And I think it might be relying a little bit, you know, too heavily on them to go ahead and do that again. 
Dan Spiegel, the New York Times, talking NFL football with us here this morning on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Tua is in his second year, of course, and because we're so enamored with the rookie pivots and what are they going to do, and there's five of them in the first round, it's easy to overlook that second class. He's a part of it. So is Justin Herbert, who was incredible last year. Joe Burrow coming off injury. Throw Jalen Hurts in the mix because he was a second-rounder there. Of those four, who do you expect to have the biggest increase in efficiency and productivity? If we're looking at Herbert and, I'm sorry, Herbert to uh, Burrow and Hurts. Oh, Burrow. You know, I'm really eager to see how Burrow fares after a knee surgery. Um, I, I don't know if he's going to be the best one out of those four this season. I think that I'm there's a part of me that's most excited to see him because of how much I enjoyed watching him in college and how eager I was for him to begin his NFL career last year before he got hurt. I, I, st- I, I still think that Herbert is going to be that guy. With the talent that they have around him, and they really built up an offensive line, which is the way that you need to go ahead and provide sound infrastructure for a young quarterback. It's what the Bills did. Um, after they sort of escaped their salary cap hell early on with Josh Allen, and it's what Telesco's doing with the Chargers around Herbert signing the Corey Lindsley to be a great center from the Packers. So if I if I had to guess, it was going to be him. I'm a little bit more skeptical um, about Hurts just because I don't think that he pals, you know, that he compares to those guys to say nothing of, of him. But if you're measuring him against Against um, against Burrow and against Herbert, then I put those two guys ahead of them. But I'm really, really excited to see what Justin Herbert does this season. Most people are. And most people believe it's going to be another impressive season for all of the reasons you mentioned. Now, he was a sixth overall pick, and when he was selected... There was a pretty big spectrum of opinion. There were those who thought, wow, that's a great pick. It's going to work out. And those who thought, this guy's never going to start in the NFL. The people on the dissenting side shut up pretty quickly last season. The same dissenters for another sixth overall pick in Daniel Jones have not quieted down because Daniel Jones has not shown what Justin Herbert has. He's going into year three. We all know what that means in the National Football League for securing a contract and the belief an organization will have in you. What are the chances Daniel Jones makes good this year? That's a great question. and I really, really think that so much of it depends on the offensive line. And you look at what they, uh, what the Giants did this offseason, and they got Galladay, they added Kyle Rudolph. But that offensive line is still a mess. And I'm, if you're going into what is a pivotal year for that franchise and for Jones – when they have two first-round picks next year and some other draft capital that they could go ahead and package, whether to move up or to go ahead and take their chances on another quarterback early, I, I just think it's going to be difficult to evaluate him under those circumstances when he might be running for his life for a fair amount of the game. I just don't trust that offensive line. Um, and regardless of whether he has Shepard and – Barkley goes ahead and comes back, and they have Galladay and Rudolph, and one of these days Evan Ingram's going to go ahead and live up to his, his, his potential. I don't know whether it's going to be this year or with the Giants, but it's going to be really difficult for the Giants to go ahead and build off last year the promise that they showed with the defensive strides that they made and the first year under Joe Judge if Daniel Jones isn't going to be protected. And I really and I really think that if anything is going to go ahead and cause the Giants downfall this season, it's going to be their offensive line. 
line, and that does not pretend good things for Daniel Jones. Well, if he's running for his life, let's just hope there's not a 20-yard line in sight. We can't forget that highlight from last season when he looked like he was going to go for a long, long scamper for a touchdown, and unfortunately the turf monster reached up and grabbed him. He remains in New York under that intense spotlight. Sam Darnold does not. Protection and many other things were an issue with the New York Jets. What chance do you give him of reclaiming his career in Carolina? I, I think that's going to be really interesting because it'll be another sort of one of those test cases where we saw – like with Ryan Tannehill, who I think was a better quarterback at Miami, uh, you know, with the Dolphins than Darnold was with the Jets, but sort of extricating him from Adam Gase. And I think that Darnold also has the misfortune of having the Jets and Juju trailing him around too. But if you look at the team that he has with him, you've got Robbie Anderson, you've got McCaffrey, you've got Terrace Marshall, who they who they drafted. There are a lot of pieces there, and certainly a better offensive cast than he had in New York. The offensive line might be marginally better, but not by a lot. And so I'm wondering, not quite the same thing with, with, with Jones, but you know, I, I, like, I hope Darnold does well. He's, a, he's, he's an easy guy to root for, at least in my, in my opinion. Um, I'm skeptical that, they're going, that, that, that he's going to go ahead and play this season to a level that is going to make David Tepper not want to go ahead and pursue other quarterback avenues um, for next season. Because after last season, remember, they were dead set on wanting to find a quarterback, any one other named Teddy Bridgewater, and they had the opportunity to go ahead and draft Justin Fields had they wanted to or Matt Jones, and they declined. And you can argue that if they didn't want a quarterback, then you're not going to go ahead and force it, and I understand that. But if you're going to go ahead and build around the quarterback, you had other offensive linemen like a guy like Rashawn Slater from Northwestern still available uh, to say nothing of how good a cornerback J.C. Horn might, might be. But I sort of shook my head at that a little bit. So um, I am eager, though, to see how Carolina does. And I could, I could imagine a scenario where they could be a surprise team because in that division you've got the Bucks and you've got everybody else. And so I don't think it's out of the question that they can go ahead Ben, I want to ask you about the Deshaun Watson situation in Houston. Obviously, an extremely, extremely complex situation. There were some rumblings earlier in the week over the weekend that trade talks might be heating up. Nothing comes of it. Now it seems like Houston will likely be content just to have him on the roster, make him inactive on game days. Is that what we should expect for the entire season? Is there any way this gets resolved this year, or is it you know, kind of inherently going to linger on into next offseason at this point? It's, it's, you know, it's honestly, your guess is as good as mine, because I, I just don't think that there's a way that a team could go ahead and take a chance on trading for him and giving up, even if it's less than what they might have originally wanted to go ahead and surrender, um, you know, before all these allegations and the lawsuits surfaced. Um, I don't think they can go ahead and justify it until these legal issues are resolved. If they're, you know, when, when, whenever that is. And so I think that if he's, if the Texans are going to trade him, it's going to be after the season. It's going to be after he gets deposed, which is in February, assuming those civil suits go to trial. And it'll be something where it could happen before the 2022 draft. 
that's like that's my best guess because the Texans want to get rid of him. Watson doesn't want to go ahead and play there. It just doesn't. I just I just can't see how a team at this point in time could go ahead and justify doing that, both from a football perspective and also trying to sell the organization, the fan base, the city on bringing in a player who has all of these um, allegations around. And everything we've heard has been that he is kind of dead set or at least, you know, would really, really prefer to go to Miami. You know, we were talking about Tua and the steps he might take forward a little earlier is, you know, uh, from the outside looking in, yeah, Miami might be a good landing spot, but if if Tua takes a big jump, then maybe they're not interested, and it feels like the potential landing spots that would be interested in paying a bounty to get to Sean Watson, it could actually end up being very limited. You know, that could be true. I will say that the quarterback market, that, that can change very, very quickly, and as we've seen these past couple of years, that teams are more more than ever want to go ahead and they're, they're, they're going to move heaven and earth to go ahead and find their guy. And all things equal, Deshaun Watson is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And so there are few organizations, and I'm, you know, in the city of one right now, and you can say Kansas City and, you know, perhaps the Chargers and, um, you know, Baltimore perhaps, where they wouldn't entertain pursuing Watson if he were to be cleared right, that they would sort of look at that from a football perspective and say, all right, we're going to, it would be an upgrade to our team and our roster to go ahead and do this. And a lot can change, right? We, you know, this year, last time, we thought everything might be hunky-dory with Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson, and who knows what's going to happen after the season with Rodgers. If he wins a Super Bowl, he doesn't win a Super Bowl, but there he wants to say how things are going to be resolved there. So while things might seem, I don't know, leaks the word I want to go ahead and use, but diminished, maybe the market for his services, I think that a lot can and is going to change over the next five or six months. Plenty of intrigue heading into this NFL season once again. We could do this for an hour or two. Ben, thank you very much for your time today. Glad to hear your family is safe. We'll do it again soon. Thank you. You bet, Scott. Thank you, guys. Take care. That is Ben Spiegel of the New York Times joining us here today. I'll get to the intrigue question in a second. He mentioned Aaron Rodgers and the Packers there, Jamie. They open on the road against New Orleans. We opened the segment asking yeah. about Ben and his family in New York and all of the flooding going on there. Well, if you haven't been paying attention to what's going on in New Orleans, the Saints have been displaced. They haven't even been practicing at their home facilities because of everything going on with the storm that's that's hit in that area of the United States. And they're going to be displaced for a month. They're going to play that first game that was supposed to be at the Superdome. They're going to play that game in Jacksonville against the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, that's their week one game. They're supposed to be hosting the Green Bay Packers. They're going to be hosting them in Jacksonville now. As you say, you know, it's not just the games, though, right? It's the practice situation. It's their facilities. It's all of that. I do, you know, initially when the storm was hitting, I think there was some concern that this could be something that stretches on, you know, week eight, week nine. The latest I've seen is, okay, they have that home game quote-unquote home game on week one week two and three they're on the road you hope they can get back for week four and play that one at the Superdome but obviously you know a situation that could change either way uh between now and then yeah that's the New York Giants game and if they can't get back for that they've got some leeway you would expect their third game at minimum be at home that game is on Halloween that's not until the 31st they've got a bye week in there and they've got a couple more road games that's a Saints team that is schedule heavy I don't know where your intrigue rankings are maybe we'll do them next week as we lead up to the 
NFL season, Jamie. But spoiler alert, the Carolina Panthers would be in my top five. I'm really intrigued by that team. They get Christian McCaffrey back. Obviously, the Canadian content with Chuba Hubbard being his backup has me looking just a little more closely, but they've added some weapons. Sam Darnold comes in. What can he be? That could be a really fun team, if not a good team. Well, and I think part of it, a huge part of it, is what our guest Ben there was saying, you know, okay, what does Sam Darnold look like away from Adam Gase, right? And it's that is such a major question, especially if you are – a big believer in the offensive coordinator there, Joe Brady, and the head coach there, Matt Rule, who have the reputation as really talented offensive play callers. And, of course, Joe, we know what Joe Brady was able to do at LSU with Joe Burrow when he was the offensive coordinator there. So that's a situation where, one, okay, getting away from Adam Gase and then going to a place where you have weapons to work with, where you have a better coaching staff, it's possible we could see a completely different Sam Darnold this year. And if we do, you're right. All of a sudden, that team looks like it can be a lot of fun. Yeah, it sure, sure could be. They don't talk about Adam Gates the same way they do about Andy Reid. Well, how's this guy going to do without Andy no. Reid and Eric Bieniemy? I'm not sure how this guy's going to fare. Adam Gase, not exactly in that same category. No, not it's quite. the same, but different. <laughs> it's it's the same, but also the complete opposite, right? Yeah. Where imagine imagine that being kind of the dominant thing that people think about you, right? And you're it's like, oh man, this guy's not working with him anymore. Sky's the limit now for him. What does an announcement out of Quebec today tell us about where the Flames might be at, where the Canucks might be at, where the Oilers might be at? We'll get to it next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Little classic rock coming back. If you are after more classic rock, if that's your jam, you're going to find the perfect mix in the Classic Rock Essentials playlist on Apple Music from the 60s and 70s all the way to the 90s. Listen to the Classic Rock Essentials playlist on Apple Music. Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd, hour number two commencing right now. We are gauging your belief today. Interest, of course, but belief as well. We had a lot of complaints, Jamie. We had a lot of complaints over the course of the past couple of months when Canada's men's national team was playing in some important matches and trying to qualify for the stage. They find themselves in beginning tonight. It's Canada-Honduras. Why isn't this on conventional television? Why isn't this on a conventional platform? Well, it is now. So you don't have that to use anymore if you're griping. You have an opportunity to watch this tonight. Canada v. Honduras from BMO Field in Toronto. It's on Sportsnet. 13 of Canada's 14 qualifying matches are going to be on Sportsnet. The other, which happens on Sunday against the States in Nashville, that'll be on TSN. So you want to consume it? It is there, and it is easy for the average Canadian to consume. Scott, are you are you more excited that it's going to be on our network, Sportsnet, and easy for everyone to watch, or are you more excited that we're not going to get those texts anymore? <laughs> why isn't Why isn't Sportsnet showing this? Why aren't you guys airing this? I don't, well, I, I don't know. It's a toss up for me. Yeah, it is a toss up for me too. <laughs> I agree with you. Like I'm. Glad I mean, I'm joking, obviously. I'm. Well, I'm no. more. I'm more happy that it's on Sportsnet. No, I don't know because I actually didn't mind the conversation, Jamie, because That's it fair. brings us back to the conversation about hey. You get to vote with your remote. You get to vote with your wallet. And if it's meaningful enough to you, raise your voice. And to a certain extent, I was being serious off the top of the show today when I said, look, you've been heard. Like, you've been heard. There's enough interest out there that has made its way to the powers that be at the network you and I work for that they said, you know what? I guess there is a demand for this. We better pony up and get this on our airwaves. And that's what they've done. Yeah. No, it's true. It is an example of... Hey, if you make enough noise and demonstrate enough interest, people will listen. I think what you said in the first segment is true as well. We all kind of, everyone, every one of us who's been talking about how excited we are for this version of the Canadian men's national team, 
we got to vote with our eyeballs now, right? And vote with our remote controls and actually demonstrate that interest and tune in and show, again, the powers that be at conventional sports broadcasting outfits that, yeah, actually, it is a good investment to be involved with this with this team because people will watch it. And we're going to find out over the next week. There are three matches today, Sunday, next Wednesday as well, that we're going to find out numbers-wise whether or not in the early stage of this that it was warranted. So we'll find out as far as interest goes. What's your belief level, though? We're gauging that today. Will the Canadian men's soccer team qualify for next year's World Cup? Yes or no? Are you convicted on either front, or are you just crossing your fingers, say, look, I'm a Canadian fan. I don't know if they'll get in or not. I really hope so, but history tells me it's probably not going to happen. I'm just crossing my fingers. You can vote on my timeline, at Scott Rental. You can find that on Twitter. You can always text us during the show at 960-960 or 650-650. Now, if you're on my timeline, which I hope you get to at some point during the course of the show, just scroll down a little because I retweeted a video this morning, Jamie, and there are times, they're not that often, but there are days where I wish this show was streamed on video because if yeah. this show were streamed on video, not so people can see you or I or the conditions are working or any of that. If we were on video... We would spend at least one segment on the six-second clip that has gone viral this morning because we'd show it on that live stream. It is incredible. I can't stop watching, and I'm glad that we have just a second here to talk about it as well. It is six seconds of an unspecified man in jorts with a mullet, sleeveless <laughs> tee, rollerblading at night, and I'm talking hauling ass down a regular street being trailed by a police vehicle. Yeah. I have he no like, idea what's going on. He is like rollerblade sprinting downhill. Not a, not a steep hill, but a little bit of an incline. And he's not coasting. He is pumping his legs trying to haul ass and get away from that police car. I don't know what the first person was that came to your mind, who the first person was when you saw this. I can tell you quickly, my first reaction was, this is like a scene out of Kenny Powers. Yes. It's, that's who, yeah. like, it looks like Kenny Powers potentially on rollerblades and the jorts and the sleeveless tee, it all works. The mullet obviously goes there. And like Kenny Powers in the fictional series, he has some athletic talent that apparently you wouldn't associate with him based on that description. That That's exactly where my mind went as well. Because of the outfit, because of the hair, everything, the involvement of the police in the situation, just the sheer ridiculousness of it all. It looks like they're filming like a special episode of Kenny Powers or something. Yeah. That's basically what it looks like. You know, sometimes you see one of these clips and you say, what's going on here? What's the backstory? Like my mind has wandered all morning long just wondering who this person is, how this yeah. police quote-unquote chase came to be because <laughs> part of the thing that intrigues me about it and, and at the top of the list is how fast this guy is rolling and this, the length of stride he is taking on these rollerblades down a city street. The police car, it's kind of chasing him, but it's more yeah. trailing him. Like, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of urgency in the no, game No, it's not. The police are much more relaxed than the guy on rollerblades. Like, they are not, you know, screeching up to behind him, yelling, anything like that. They're just kind of chilling. They're just like, okay, we'll, we'll just, like, ease on the brakes, go down this hill, keep up with this guy, but we're not too worried here. Whatever is happening, they're not particularly concerned with it. The guy on the rollerblades is very, very, very concerned, though. Yeah, he most certainly is. And I don't know if there's a governor on the vehicle or not, but if there if there is, like the guy might actually outrun them. Like he might outskate them. <laughs> he 
he is flying. You never know. He's building up some speed. I mean, he's not obviously he's not wearing a helmet or any kind of safety gear or anything. I would be just so concerned if I would. I mean, obviously he's got bigger worries on his mind. But you're motoring <laughs> like that, going downhill on rollerblades. That's a dangerous situation, man. Did he steal the rollerblades? Is that why he's trying to get away? Is he fleeing a different kind of crime? Is he already on the run from the law and he's been identified and this is his plan to get? I have no, I have so many questions and I have so many ideas in my mind. We don't need to go into all of them now. I would encourage everybody to watch it today. If you just need a laugh at some point today, if you just want to pick your spirits up, go watch this video because you'll be there for a while. Yeah, he's not carrying any loot or anything. So he's, you know, maybe, I guess if he stole something, it could be, you know, the rollerblades or I don't know, the shirt he's wearing or something. But he's not making off with anything, at least at that point. So I don't know. I don't know what exactly has to happen in your life to find yourself in that specific situation. Now, Greg is opping the show today. And Greg, during one of the breaks, told me that you've seen not this scene in particular, but you have seen a scenario unfold where someone tried to get away on rollerblades. I have, yes, personally. When I used to work retail, I was at a sports equipment store, and a customer wanted to try on rollerblades. So I wasn't helping this particular customer, but I witnessed (laughs) the customer get out of the seat and literally rollerblade out of the store with the rollerblades still on. So it's happened. It's happened. Were they apprehended? Did you stop them? No, I did not personally stop them. I don't know the end of the story. I, I'm pretty sure they got away with it. Uh, the only <laughs> the only problem is they were wearing a, a set of rollerblades with indoor wheels, and if they plan Whoa. on taking it outdoors, they probably wouldn't have gotten too far. But well, see, just... they should have they should have asked to a, a retail expert like yourself before they yes. left the store. Yes. They should have said, "Hey, are these indoor or outdoor wheels?" And, and What's, they did what leave am I getting their, into here? They left their shoes behind too, so we got a nice little trade. Just doing well, laps of the mall. I can't bad. take these outside. I can't take these outside. Wow. I hope they get tired. I'm guessing you weren't in the rollerblade section because you were posted up by the goalie gear. Well, yes, of course. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, I was uh, probably helping uh, the imaginary goalie customer with their their goalie equipment. It is Scott Rental. It's Jamie Dodd, Greg Ballack. He is taking care of things back at Mission Control as he is most days on this program. Okay, Jamie, that's a segue into hockey, sort of, because there's roller skates involved or roller blades involved. Now we kind of associate that with hockey. I did want to sneak this in today because I wonder if it's any type of indication as to what's coming in Western Canada. By now, you all know that your province, wherever you're residing, has different regulations relative to other provinces in Canada and the restrictions that are involved. But you saw this today, Jamie. The Montreal Canadiens, they are going to have an inter-squad scrimmage later this month. They're going to sell tickets for 10 bucks a piece. And there's a cap on capacity right now, Jamie. Yes, and I believe it is 7,500 people that they are going to allow into that into the arena for that event. Right. So those who cover the Montreal Canadiens have checked back with the club and said, is this an indication of what it's going to be for the home opener? And they said, well, for now... That's what we're allowed to do, so we're allowing up to 7,500 people. So unless that changes, yeah, I guess it's going to be about 7,500 people. Would it look the same in Calgary, in Edmonton, in Vancouver? I'm not sure, and I imagine the member clubs are in conversation with the provincial health authorities as now. Sources that are close to the Canucks, for example, have indicated to me that they're in conversation and they kind of have their fingers crossed right now that to begin – it would be 50%. Whether that's preseason games and you hope things get better relative to COVID cases and and you can increase that, but 50% is sort of a moving target right now, at least on the West Coast. That's not hard and fast, but that seems like a realistic possibility at least later this month or perhaps early next month. 
And, you know, obviously the 7,500 in Montreal is is less than 50% of capacity at the Bell Centre. But, you know, different provinces, different regulations. And I think it's also, I don't know what stage of the, you know, vaccine mandate, vaccine passport rollout Quebec is at. But you would expect those rules coming into effect would change things in a positive direction for the teams, right? And if if this event that Montreal is planning is kind of coming into effect or, or is going to happen before the vaccine passport is fully rolled out, well, yeah, then a smaller uh, capacity makes sense. If, if games are happening after those systems are in place, you would hope that the capacity can increase a little bit. Yeah, and we've seen some rollout with outdoor events, specifically the Canadian Football League here in recent days. The Elks and the Rough Riders, the latest to join the party of saying, look, you're going to need vaccination to come to our stadium, and it's going to start on this date, which is different in Edmonton than it happens to be in Saskatchewan, but we've seen that type of rollout all along. There's a certain amount to be gleaned by that. I imagine there's a lot of teams not the least of which is the three Western Canadian ones I mentioned, looking at a team like the BC Lions, which plays in an indoor-slash-outdoor stadium. You open the roof, and you can call it an outdoor stadium, but we all know, in effect, it's not quite that. And I believe, someone correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe for the purposes of the regulations, they said they're treating it as an indoor stadium, right? So you're right. A lot of teams are going to be looking at that and saying, hey, that's basically an indoor stadium, so if those rules apply there, why not some other places? Yeah, and there's going to be masks mandated, and there's going to be vaccination passports. And look, if you've been paying attention to the news, there's been some hubbub about that and protests in the last couple of days. But that's where it's going right now with professional sports teams and and their ability to control their environment as best they can. Exactly, right? And it's you know it's going to be such a complicated process, right? As all of these teams talk to the the, the local health authorities, right? Provincially, municipally, everything. And, you know, it might not look the same everywhere across the country, at least not to start. But I actually think the news out of Montreal is a positive today that, hey, at least 7,500, maybe it's not as much as you want, but that's a good chunk of fans. And you you have to assume that's only going to go up as we progress through the season. Well, and Calgary and Vancouver get a little bit of leeway. Calgary will play just one of its first seven games at home. That's it. Now it's its second, so it's a little bit different than Vancouver. Vancouver goes on the road for its first six. Six games, I believe, right? Yeah. And I imagine part of that was I I imagine part of that was requested. I don't have any confirmation. That's just logic to me, Jamie. Hey, look, it might take a little longer for us to be able to get more people in the stands and we're hopeful and we're crossing our fingers. So give us an early road trip so that we get a little more leeway from that standpoint. You mean it's not a conspiracy by Gary Bettman in the NHL to punish the Canucks? <laughs> what? I thought I thought that was what it was. Of course it is. Always. Always. It always, always. is. So, you know, late in the month of October, maybe Calgary, maybe Vancouver get a little more. Yep. I guess that's what they're hoping for. But that's the news out of Montreal today. We'll keep you apprised of anything that is breaking. Let's get to what they're saying. I keep saying this about the Calgary Flames. I feel like something's going to happen here in the next couple of weeks roster-wise or maybe in the next month. I just feel like not enough's been done yep. relative to what was said by the general manager. And and I just feel like there's going to be a significant transaction of some sort. Don't you? That is that's something I've been waiting for for a while now, right? Because he was very, very clear about what his expectation was for this offseason. It hasn't happened. That doesn't mean they've had a bad offseason. It just hasn't matched what he said was going to happen. There's still time, though. The line from Brad Living was, we have to change. We must change. Yep. And 
there's been some change, but not the type that most had expected to happen with the Calgary Flames and the nucleus of that team. Vancouver, by comparison, Jim Benning said, we're going to be aggressive. Whether you like the moves or not, no one would accuse him of being anything other than that. No, there was no lack of aggression, no lack of bold moves in Vancouver. Toronto was interesting. We're going to run it back, said Kyle Dubas and the Leafs. For the most part, that's what we're doing. No, we're not trading one of the big guns. It's not going down that way. We're going to move some of the parts around. Can they retain Nick Foligno was one of the questions. We all know by now they did not. Nick Foligno is a member of the Boston Bruins. He was on Fan 590 in Toronto today talking about the conversations he had with Kyle Dubas and the pitch to keep him in Toronto and how much one there was. Well, I think Dubas' pitch was, listen, you know what we're made of and you know what we're trying to do. Um, you know, and I, I think it just came down to, to term and, and all those things. I mean, at the end of the day, you want to feel the value of when you step on the ice for what you're bringing to the team. And, you know, just uh, unfortunately, we just couldn't quite get to the same numbers. And it's hard when you have a team like Boston that, that really offers about the same that's in a you know, different aspect. So that was kind of where it, it just kind of faltered. We didn't have a ton of conversations uh, they kind of were stuck on a number and and a uh, time frame and um you know and I had to move quick that's the part of free agency that's kind of hard it's it's not waiting around to see what else can happen I, I also like to go with my gut and um you know that's the reason why I went to Toronto in the first place so uh it was hard to, to you know have that end because I think for me as a competitor you always want to kind of finish what you start uh and I felt like that that obviously the job wasn't done in Toronto but at the same time, you know, there's there's a team like Boston that really is excited to have me and, and you know, values uh, what I bring and, you know, and, and made it known in a sense of, of how excited they were in a lot of ways during the free agency. So uh, I'm really excited now to be joining them. Two-year deal, 3.8 per to go become a member of the Boston Bruins, a team that has a much different feel around it culture-wise and certainly playoff result-wise than Toronto Maple Leafs. I don't know if that indicates the Leafs were only offering one year or if they were offering only two years at a lower number, but it sounds to me like, yeah, I wanted to stay, but there's a limit to how much I was willing to give up. And I think the other interesting takeaway from that clip is – the sense of just kind of how hectic free agency is at the start of it and how much pressure there is to make a decision. You know, you heard him say, I kind of just have to go with my gut. I I don't like the idea of waiting around on the open market. And I think sometimes we get the sense that, you know, there's these long drawn out negotiations, but as Nick Foligno said there, you know, really they had a number. Okay. Oh, okay. Don't love that number. Boston had a different number. Boom there. That's it. That that's the decision. It's not this big back and forth, right? Where, where, where you're sitting down and getting all these pitches. That's how it is for the high end free agents. But for guys like Nick Foligno, it, it's a much faster decision-making process for them. Well, and I imagine there were some people out there, Jamie, that heard Felino say, Hey, you know what we're all about? You know what it's like to be here. Let's run it back. And I imagine there were some people in our audience chuckling saying, yeah, we know what yep. it's all about. <laughs> It's about exactly. yeah. a lot of promise that hasn't been delivered to this point. In time. No one would argue this isn't an extremely talented team. No one would argue that, but it is a team that has failed time and time again to get where it's supposed to go. Yeah, so I, I was, I was, I, that stuck out to me as well, right? Hey, you know what we're all about? I do, and that's why I'm leaving, right? And he didn't say that, and that's not fair to say, right? Because as you said, there was some temptation to, you know, finish what he started in Toronto. But yeah, that's one interpretation of events. Man, there's a lot of pressure on that team. I, we could say that oh every year about a team in that market, but I don't know how it gets any bigger than this.
No, it really doesn't. And it it feels like it's not it's gone past because they've chosen to run it back, right? And they haven't made any major moves to the players, to the front office, to the coaching staff. It feels like if things go sideways again for them this year, we're not talking about, you know, the coach gets fired or the GM gets fired or they make a trade. It feels like we're talking about all three of those things, right? That they could completely transform that organization because we're kind of past the point with the Leafs where, oh, okay, we'll try a new coach, right? That's not going to cut it if they fail again this time. One more clip to get in here. We were talking some NFL with Ben Spiegel last hour, and we asked about a number of quarterbacks who are in this prove-it situation and what could they be at this point of their careers. One of the ones we did not get to is Jameis Winston, who took the deal last year much smaller than people thought to sit there, learn under the apprenticeship of Drew Brees and Sean Payton with the promise that a year from now you're going to legitimately get an opportunity to compete for the job. He did that, and he got the job. Robert Mays, who hosts the Athletics NFL show, had this to say when asked, what version of Jameis Winston are we going to get this year? I just never believed that they would end training camp and end the offseason thinking that Taysom Hill was a better NFL quarterback than Jameis Winston. For whatever reservations you had about Jameis Winston, I think that we've gotten there. And now I really do think it sets up as a fascinating football experiment because you have a guy who has been fantastic in stretches. I mean, you look at yards per play, some of the efficiency metrics. I want to say Sam Monson was talking about it earlier this week, saying that like 98% of his plays have been positively graded. It was one of the highest rates in the league. And then he also has the highest percentage of negative graded plays since he came into the NFL. He just lives at both of the poles. Hmm. And can he get closer? If those negative plays decrease by half, what does Jameis Winston look like? And I don't know if Sean Payton wields that power, but that's what I want to see. It's an interesting question, and it's one that is so tough to answer because New Orleans, Jamie, is not at its full complement of players to begin this nope. season. They've got injuries specifically in the receiving core. Yeah, they don't have this incredible array of offensive weapons necessarily, at least to start the year, that we're used to seeing out of New Orleans. Marquez Callaway, for those looking for perhaps a sleeper, yep. a very good preseason. Michael Thomas is on the shelf on the pup list right now. If you are getting ready for your draft and you have some belief in Sean Payton and the offensive prowess that exists in New Orleans, Marquez Callaway might be a name you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, look, you're going to pick Alvin Kamara high in your draft anyways, but if Michael Thomas is out, if you're in a PPR league, Alvin Kamara is going to catch a ton of passes from Jameis Winston in the early going. A ton of press, and deservedly so, for Rebecca Johnston and her Canadian teammates who were golden earlier this week in Calgary. She joins us next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Yep, that'll work anytime. Thank you. You can play it anytime coming back from break. Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd. We got a text in when we were detailing the video. Jamie, about the rollerblader yeah. with the jorts and the sleeveless and the mullet getting chased by a cop. It's great. We got a text from somebody because we speculated how did this come to be? Did he steal the rollerblades? And Greg talked about working in a sports store and somebody actually doing that, going in there, trying on rollerblades and skating out of the store, getting away. Someone texted in, while trying out running shoes, I have run in stores to try them out. One time I had a clerk thank me for coming back after running 50 meters because she stated there's no way she was <laughs> catching me. 
Well, you can just imagine that moment of kind of dread. Oh, is this guy running away? Am I going to have to chase him? What's going on? Oh, oh, good. He's coming back. Okay, phew, phew. Have you ever thought that when you're trying on running shoes? Because like the texter, I have tried on shoes before, and you want to have a feel for what they're going to feel like when you run. There's always the classic, hey, walk around the store. Okay, that's cool, but I'm not just going to be walking in these. I'm going to be running in these. I want a little bit of a feel. Is my toe going to be smashing up against the end? Is there any part on the sole that's going to be impacting my foot where it doesn't feel great? Are they too tight? Um, with the texture, I want to run a little bit. Yeah. Most, sto- most stores aren't conducive to that. No, very much not. But, of course, it makes sense. You want to see how it works for what you're actually going to use it for. Yeah, and if you ever worked at, say, a footlocker back in the day, was that one of your fears as a staff member? Okay, somebody's just going to get out of here. Somebody is just going to put these on and roll out of here. They've they've come in here with these raggedy old shoes that they've now left on my floor, and they stink, and I don't want anything to do with them. And this person tells me they're going to, quote, unquote, test the shoes. They're just going to go. And what am I supposed to do at that point? Call mall security? Yeah, it. Uh, I do think... You know, in a lot of con, in a lot of contexts, like it's easier to commit crimes than sometimes we think, right? Like you don't have to be a criminal mastermind to pull that off. You know what I mean? You just put the shoes on and walk out and get in your car and drive away. It would work because exactly, what's the Footlocker employee gonna do? You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not saying go do it. I'm just saying sometimes you think about it. You're like, oh wow, why, why doesn't it happen more often? Jamie Dodd's guide to shoplifting this morning here. <laughs> Okay, hold on. On that point, I have a quick story. I have a, a friend of a friend once who was he uh, works for the Vancouver Police, and he told me this story. You know, if you if you're in Vancouver, you know down on like Robson and Alberni, there's all the fancy uh, like high end retail stores, right? Like Hermé and Versace and all of that. And one of them, you know, a bunch of really expensive handbags on display in the store, and there's you know two or three young ladies working in the store, and somebody drives up, parks right out front. Walks into the store and looks at them and says, ladies, I'm taking these purses. And grabs a bunch of purses, <laughs> puts them in a bag, walks out and gets into his car and drives away. Never solved. Simple as that. There you go. Wow. Never solved. But very polite. Oh, that's yeah. the most polite thief we've had in here in a long time. And while I don't appreciate the act, I do appreciate the manners. It just makes, ladies, I'm taking these purses. Oh, okay. I guess. I guess that's what's happening here. Have a great day. I hope I have yeah. caused Bye-bye. you no stress. I hope I have caused you no stress. Someone texts in, Foot Locker needs a treadmill. That is what you see in a lot of the running stores now, Jamie. Like Obviously, yeah. there has been that adaptation. Okay, you can't run in the store, but we'll put you on the treadmill, and they'll do the gait analysis there for you as well. Yeah, well, if you're, yeah, if you're taking it really seriously, you can go that way. Can't really do that with skates, can you? Not so much. Not so much. Maybe Rebecca Johnson, who is a fantastic skater and helped skate her way and her team's way to a gold medal a couple of nights ago in Calgary, can tell us what she'd like to see in a store where she gets skates. Maybe there needs to be a skating treadmill in every single one. She joins us now fresh off that gold medal medal performance. Rebecca, thank you very much for doing this today. How are you? I'm great. How are you? We're very well, thank you very much. We're not golden like you are. We probably don't still have that yeah. that smile on our face. Did you catch up on sleep last night after what was a fantastic <laughs> celebratory Tuesday? Yeah, I for sure. I got some sleep last night, which was much needed, but uh, we definitely enjoyed ourselves after that final game. I want to share this with you. This wasn't prompted by anything. We just happened to mention you were coming on the show today, and we got this text in. Rebecca Johnson is the best 
puck-carrying skater I've seen in the women's international game. I'm always looking for her to get the puck. Stride up the ice with a very good stick and puck handling skills. And no, I'm not her dad. I just have an astute appreciation for her talents. Go number six. That's from Terry in the Ridge. What part of your game do you most pride yourself on? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think I'm definitely known for my skating. So that's always been a strength of mine um, ever since I was little playing. So I think I take a lot of pride in that. Did you take to it right away, or is there someone you credit with getting your stride where it's at? Is it just natural ability, or is there somebody along the way that really unlocked that for you? Oh, gosh. Um, I think, honestly, I was just a good skater from the get-go. Um, but definitely my my dad was my coach growing up, and uh, he definitely taught me a lot. But the skating was, was a huge part, um, especially at this level. You have to be fast to be able to play and international so um it definitely is an important aspect of the game so rebecca i want to talk to you a little bit about the gold medal game and obviously you know the moment where marie philippe Poulin scores the golden goal and no one really knows that it's in it was such a strange moment <laughs> watching she's celebrating play is still going on take us through it from your perspective how did you see the play unfold did you know it was in right away or did you have a, a moment of confusion as well what did it look like from your vantage point yeah, I think we all um, thought it was in, um, but then the play kept going on. So uh, obviously, you know, you have to keep playing. And, and I was on the bench and I saw um, when Pooh came off, she was pretty confident that it went in. So we were just kind of waiting for that buzzer. And eventually it, it went off and then we all just jumped on, on the ice and we're, we're so excited. Um, so it was it was a little bit of confusion for sure. But right when that buzzer went, we knew that it was in. Is it safe to say that when a player like her says it's in, that everyone else should probably have a pretty good idea that it was actually in? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and we knew there's the replay and, and they were going to check every goal and, and shot. So uh, we knew that eventually they were going to call that. So we're just waiting for, for that moment. So you go down 2 nothing in that game in the first period and you're down 2 nothing after the first period. What was the conversation like in the locker room when you're when you're getting ready to go out for the second? You know what? We were so calm. I mean, we knew we had a lot of game left. Um, we knew that we were playing pretty good. Like we shouldn't have been down two nothing, or um, we definitely, you know, we're playing pretty good hockey. So we weren't panicked at all. And um, I think what was great about this team um, was that you know we we've had um, some setbacks. We've had you know, some ups and downs throughout throughout the last couple of years. But this group really was, was so calm and, and confident going into this tournament. And um, so that final game, we were down to nothing. And it was like, you know, we got this. It was fine. We were calm and we were composed. Rebecca Johnson, part of Canada's gold medal winning team at the World Championship. She joins us here today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You and Marie-Philippe Poulin have very similar timelines. You are of a similar age. So you've been on this entire journey with her. You were part of gold in 2010 mm -hmm. and 2014. You've seen her score the, the hat mm -hmm. trick of golden goals, if you will. We can just rename those MPPs <laughs> if we want here. What is it about her specifically that makes her so special in those moments, in your opinion, as someone who's close with her? Yeah, I think she's she's such a competitor. She's, you know, always is striving to get better, always striving to learn. And um, I think in those big moments, she has, she is confident. She knows that, you know, her abilities and what she can do. And so in those big moments, there's no nerves. There's just, um, 
you know, she knows exactly what she, what she can do and she can bring and she can score. She like she has that that talent. She has such a great shot. So um, I think in those key moments, um, and the main thing is is that she she isn't nervous. She's she, she's excited for the challenge and excited for for those um, you know those important games where uh, you know someone needs to step up and, and score a goal. Given how accomplished your entire team has been during your tenure with the national side, it still feels somewhat surprising that this is the first time Canada's won gold medal at the World Championships since 2012. What about this year's team in particular made it special? Yeah, it's been it's been a while, and um, it's it's crazy to think about. But honestly, this this team there was just something different. We had. We were so close as a group. I mean, I think COVID has helped with that and being stuck in a bubble just together. And, um, but, you know, we just, we have such a talented team. And I think the main thing was that the rookie, we had a lot of, of rookies and younger players and, and they came in with such confidence and they contributed so much to, to the team and to the roster um, that I think we were just so deep and well-rounded and, and we were playing so well. And I think that just confidence really, um, you know, followed us through throughout that tournament. And I think that was the main thing was that we had that, that depth and, and the rookies were, were playing with confidence and, and contributing. Unlike you, those rookies had never tasted gold at the World Championships. You were part of that team back in 2012, and you get another one here in 2021. You've won Olympic golds. But at this point of your career, what is the significance of this win to you personally? I think this win um, definitely means so much and, and probably one of the biggest wins, honestly, in my career. Obviously, Olympic golds are, are huge and, and um, you know, huge accomplishment. So those are, are probably my, my most accomplished gold medals. But I would say, you know, this one is really, really close just with, you know, the couple of years that we, we've had um, world championships being canceled. Um, I had quite uh, an injury leading up to the to this year about a year ago ruptured my Achilles so there's a lot um that happened within the last year and a half that um you know I really had to to overcome and and try to to get back to healthy and um just get back to a good place and so I think this was the huge the biggest accomplishment for me was making this world championship team and then being able to to win a gold medal finally after almost 10 years so um it's just an amazing feeling but uh, definitely, definitely a meaningful gold medal. Was there an additional significance or importance based on the fact that you win it in the city in which you live? <laughs> that also is true. Yeah, uh, it would have been great if we could sell out the building and, and everything like that. But um, it was definitely great to be home, just to be feel like I'm I'm at home and and be on home soil for sure. It's, it's always great to win a gold medal on home soil. And Rebecca, as you mentioned, you know, there's been a lot of obstacles put in the path of the Canadian women's team of women's hockey in general over the last couple of years, of course, with last year's mm -hmm. tournament being canceled. And then this year's tournament looked like it was set to go in the spring. It was canceled as well before finally being able to play in Calgary, uh, you know, just recently. Take us through just your entire emotions through that process, right? With the tournament first getting canceled and then finally being able to get back on the ice and, and play with your teammates in a big stakes tournament like this. Yeah, it's, it was a lot of ups and downs, a lot of highs and lows this past year and a half, two years. And so um, I almost was getting used to, to not really knowing what the future held, you know, with COVID and, and everything that was going on. 
Um, but when that world championship was canceled in April, it was, it was definitely a hard one to swallow. We all, we all were prepared and ready and trained all year for that moment. And, and so we were just so thrilled that we finally found out that we would have world championships in August in, in Calgary. So we we're so happy that it was able to run and that we were able to compete and, and obviously win that gold medal that is the emotions were, were all over the map. I feel like in terms of just, um, being on hold, everything or being canceled. And so for, for us, it was, um, a, r- a rough year for, for a lot of people, obviously, but, um, we were just happy that we were able to pull through and, and make it all worth it and get that gold medal. Well, and I, I know we, as as fans and a lot of our listeners, we were also so thrilled that they were able to stage the tournament, and then, of course, that you were able to go and win gold. And I know for me personally, just getting another chance to see the Canada and USA rivalry play out on a big stage in a gold medal game was fun- fantastic. You've played in a lot of those games. I mean, first of all, how much fun is it to actually be in the heat of that rivalry? Oh, it's it's the best i mean we it's it's one of the best rivalries of of you know of sport like it's um there's just there's so much um history there and and so to be able to play against the states like i always love playing against them um doesn't matter how many times a year i play against them it's it's so competitive the games are you know aggressive fast um you know a lot of talent on the ice so it's it's just a lot of fun and um to have that rivalry and, and that competitiveness and I know, you know, look, obviously the rules in the women's game are, are a little bit different in terms of body checking. But then when Canada USA rolls around, all of a sudden the physicality, I mean, I was watching that game and I felt there were some cross checks that, you know, they would have been calling in, in game seven of the Stanley Cup final and they were letting them go. Is that the expectation, right? That, okay, the rule book, we know it's going to change. It's going to be a little different out there on the ice when it's us versus the USA. Yeah, I think there's just that extra um you know the extra aggressiveness the extra you know wanting to win and and um competitiveness that comes out and um female hockey is a pretty aggressive sport yeah there's not the open ice hitting but there's definitely um you know along the boards aggression hitting along the boards and and everything like that so it's it's a lot more aggressive than people think and um against the states it definitely uh, steps up a notch Rebecca Johnson, gold medal winner with Team Canada on Tuesday. She joins us here this morning on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. We talked, we opened our show after you guys won with the fact that August, once again, defined by Canadian women, and there have been a bunch of months like that and a bunch of years like that, and it started with what was happening at the Olympics and the Canadian women's soccer team, and it caps off with you guys winning and Bianca Andreescu winning as well at the U.S. Open that night. It really was a month defined by women. You guys have led from the front for a very long time with the National Women's Hockey Program. I saw the great video of you guys watching the women's soccer match, the gold medal <laughs> game, and celebrating like the rest of us here in this country. How much synergy does your group feel with the other national teams? Oh, I, I mean, we're all so, so proud to, to be Canadian and to represent our country. And so we have so much respect for all the, the other athletes and the other sports. And we were all glued to our TVs when we were at training camp. And every time we were back at the hotel, we were watching the Olympics and, cheering on all the athletes and um, it was pretty exciting. And obviously that, that final game against um, the final game of, uh, for the Canadian women's soccer team was, I mean, it was an awesome game and we were, we were all so excited to, 
to be able to cheer for for them and watch that game and we're so happy for them i mean they they deserve that and um again it's just it's so much fun being able to just just cheer for um for athletes and them competing for their country i mean it's something special and we all both have mutual respect for that the games played out a little bit differently. You guys didn't go to a shootout, but there was some similarity going down early, fighting back to tie, going to extra yeah. time, and and getting it done on both fronts, which was fantastic for everybody in this country watching, whether it was you or whether it was Christine Sinclair and our national team. She came out after that match and said, okay, you guys are paying attention to us now. We don't have a domestic league in this country. That has to change. Mm-hmm. There have been similar calls, and they have been coming for a long time on the women's front for hockey. Do you feel like the momentum has built us close to where we're getting there now? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the Olympics really helped with, with exposure. You know, the more exposure we can get, the more, you know, times our t- uh, our games are on TV, um, any media platform, um, you know, we can we can get our hands on and try to, to promote our game, the better. And I think it is, is improving and the exposure and attention that we're getting is definitely increased since I started playing um, with the national team. So I think it's just continuing to do that. I mean, I know so many people love watching women's hockey or women's soccer. And so it's just a matter of, of people being able to have access to, to watch us play. And so hopefully we continue to go in the right direction, but it's, it's, I, I think it is getting better, but we, it needs to get much better from here. What would having a, a strong, stable domestic league mean for you personally, Rebecca, but also for women's hockey and the program in Canada in general? Like, I mean, we just want a sustainable hockey league where, you know, these younger girls can aspire to play in this league and, and play for teams they want to play for and um, be able to watch women's hockey and and be able to go to games and and watch their idols and role models um, play and compete. So um, just, I mean, just the basics at at this point, it's just a matter of getting a league and getting it started and then um, being able to grow from there. But um, yeah, there needs to be some sort of league so that these, these girls, younger girls for the next generation need, you know, have a place to to play and um, look up to and, and want to try to aspire to play in. One of the uh, many unique things about this year's World Championships, they're in August, so all of a sudden, I mean, we're only six months away from the next Winter Olympics. What does the next uh, little bit look like for you, Rebecca? Yeah, I think it's, it is definitely an interesting year. Normally, we're we're still on vacation in August and, and just training off-ice, but, um, you know, this World Championships uh, definitely is setting setting us up for training through uh, centralization year and so we'll be training with the national team full-time and trying out for the olympic olympic roster and um you know hopefully making that olympic olympic team and then competing in february for canada when you were coming up i imagine you were watching the likes of Haley wickenheiser and cassie campbell pascal and and those trendsetters and trailblazers and hoping to be them one day you mentioned the rookies earlier for them i imagine like a, a filier for example you were probably one of the examples. Does that resonate with you now as you see this next wave come in? Yeah, it is. It's kind of crazy. I still honestly feel like I'm one of the young ones, but I'm, I'm definitely not. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it it is crazy to think that these girls were, you know, watching me play at the 2010 Olympics and they were so young and and wanting to 
to one day make the national team. And so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's special and it's a responsibility to be able to, to guide them and, and help um, in any way I can to, so that they're comfortable and confident in playing um, the best hockey they can so that we can be successful. And it is uh, a responsibility and it's, but it's also, you know, and I, I think it is pretty, pretty cool to be able to have that um, veteran status and, and have people look up to you and, and, and want to, to, to do what you're doing and, and, and have questions for you about, you know, how you, you've made it to the team and how long you've been on the team and all that. So it's, it is pretty special. Yeah, I can only imagine how fulfilling that is. I am far older than you, Rebecca, but even at my age, I tell myself that I'm still one of the young ones. So you can do it for a long time, trust me. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much for doing this today. Congratulations to you, your teammates, everybody involved with Hockey Canada and the women's program. We're looking forward to cheering you on come Beijing 2022. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That is Rebecca Johnston. Anytime. Welcome on this program. She's been a Absolutely. stalwart for this team. And, and she, again, we referenced Haley Salvian earlier. Marissa and Jemmy joined us earlier this week to tee up this game. But that was one of the stories that, that Haley brought up, just how difficult it would have been for Rebecca Johnston to get back to this point, coming off that Achilles injury. And when skating is her bread and butter, one of the, the top skills that she's associated with, just to get back to this point was an accomplishment. You can only imagine how trying it would have been when, okay, I'm back, I'm part of this team. Oh, by the way, we're canceling the world championships. Yeah. Man, that would have been deflating at the time. It ends on a very good note, Jamie, but I can only imagine from a personal standpoint how that was for her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that she was able, again, to get all the way back and she played well in this tournament, scored a couple goals for Canada, like, thank goodness for her and for all of them that it was actually able to go through. And it's funny because, you know, she's only 31, right? But you're right. She's been around since really the 2010 Vancouver game. She even played in world championships prior to that. So she has a long, long history with this program as a performer on this team. But it, it is funny to hear her say, wait, I'm still I'm still one of the young ones, right? Aren't I? Oh, no. No, Sarah Philly is a lot younger than me, it turns out. Yeah, I know the feeling well. I know the feeling well. <laughs> Bo texts in at the tail end of that interview. Rebecca brings up something that speaks to me, says Bo. Some men will say there's no point in a women's league because, quote, no one will be watching. What about the young girls who dream of playing pro hockey? I want them to be excited about hockey and have the option of cheering for a women's team instead of an NHL team. Agreed. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And we don't have to go down that road today. I'm happy to go down it at any other point. But, Jamie, you, you've heard me argue for a very long time that it's the right thing to do. But even if you want to be cold yeah. and calculating, if you want to be cold and calculating from a business front, which is often where the decisions are made, by putting more professional women on television, you are inspiring more young women to take up the game. And we all know that fandom starts for most people when they begin playing a sport. And yeah. the, re the retention of those who play a sport, no matter how far they go, is so much higher. So if you just want to create more hockey fans, quite frankly, you've been marketing to only half of the population for almost the entirety of your existence. How about bringing in the other 50% if even just to up your own coffers. Yeah, and the argument against it from a business standpoint is becoming harder and harder to sustain, right? As we see, I mean, again, we got record ratings for that gold medal game. Look, I understand that's a one-off, it's a gold medal game, but 
again, we're seeing it in the United States with the WNBA, with the NWSL. Their ratings are going through the roof. Even again, as you said, if all you want to do is look at it from a cold, calculating business perspective, the argument against investing in women's sports, it's its really hard to sustain at this point. We have seen repeatedly the interest is there if it is properly handled. From one national team to another, we began the show talking about the Canadian men's soccer team. Final round of qualifying begins tonight. What lies ahead for Canada? What is realistic for Canada? John Molinaro joins us next right here on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.